I'm going to share next our, our scripture reading from uh, the book of Isaiah in chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7 uh, for that. And uh, I don't know that I remember to put it on the screen, so you might want to look it up in your Bible or device or just uh, listen because that might have been something I skipped when I arrived this morning. But it's I, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. receive God's word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. It's funny sometimes answering my my kids' questions about different things in the world because they're still very much in the the black and white mode. Is this good or bad? Is this a good person or a a bad person? And these are still the, the way it's framed. And I wish that it could be more true that things really were just either true or false, or that the answer to the question could either be just A or B more often. That would be a nice thing in our world to keep things a little simpler. But a lot of the time, things are a little more mixed up than that. A lot of things are a mixture of true and false. Sometimes the right answer to a question is a little bit of both, A and B. Life requires the ability to hold some different things in tension. And this is even true of Christmas. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, right? That's how the song goes. It is lights and decorations and joyful song and good food and the embrace of family and the laughter of children and the sharing of love and faith. But of course, that's not all it is. For some people, Christmas is wondering how to put anything under the tree for their kids when they can't keep up with the cost of food. For some, it's making plans to spend as much time as possible with that loved one who isn't likely to be around for the next Christmas. Or it's deciding how much to bother decorating now that you're not sharing a home with somebody else this season. It's hoping to finally get into the hospital for that long-delayed treatment. It's hoping to to stay out of the hospital just long enough to have that time with those you love at home. 
that's also Christmas to some of us, to others that we love. It's also the reason that some counselors and mental health people like to wish people a gentle Christmas this time of year, recognizing that, well, that Mary may not just be the right word for everybody. And what I'll try to draw on from today's scripture passage is like this as well. Peace is not one thing. There isn't a single path to it either. Peace is about what's inside of me. It's also about what's going on around me. Peace is about my present circumstances, and peace is about what I hope for in the future as well. And so I want to start right into our passage from Isaiah 9. And if you know what it's like to have faced or to be facing a season of discouragement or defeat or despair, well, then you will have a better understanding of the people that this was written to. Because it was written to the people of Jerusalem, the people of the, the Judah, the southern kingdom. And, the, and they were not in a good state. The, the glory days of King David and King Solomon, when that kingdom had some wealth and, and power and reason to be optimistic about its future, those were long gone. Jerusalem was a backwater town in an unimportant nation a series of terrible kings had left them neck deep in corruption and idolatry. Their days looked like they could very well be numbered. They knew this because they had just seen their cousins in the northern kingdom of Israel be wiped off of the map. The mighty Assyrian Empire's army had come and had conquered and had deported the survivors. The ten tribes of Israel who used to live there were suddenly just gone. The only reason the same thing didn't happen to Judah was that they chose to pay tribute to Assyria instead. And so, instead of being conquered, they lived under a crippling tax burden. It was painful, it was humiliating, and there was no reason to think it was going to get any better. And those were tough emotional and material struggles for them. But this also created a spiritual struggle for them as well. Because where was God? Where was the God who promised to bless all the nations through Abraham's children, who made Israel his special people, his nation of priests. Why was God letting this happen? Had he broken his covenant promises and given up on them? And so discouragement and defeat and despair reigned in Jerusalem. But God had not broken his promise or given up on them. God was still very much in control, still working out a plan that would lead to his people's good and the world's salvation. God just doesn't do things according to our preferred timing or our expectations. But it does not mean that he has abandoned us. And so one way God let his people know that he had not broken his promise or given up on them was by giving a vision and his own words to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah was given this glimpse into God's future, and he saw that something was coming. And the source of hope that Isaiah saw was a person, but a person who was more than a person. He saw a coming king. And he'd already introduced this figure briefly. If you look at Isaiah chapter 7, he says, therefore, he talks about this figure who's coming and says, the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But now here in chapter 9, he has much more to say about this future king. He says, first of all, he's going to identify with a place, Galilee. And this was the area especially devastated by the Assyrian army in Isaiah's time. It was this place of tremendous destruction and defeat. 
But Isaiah predicts that God is going to honor Galilee in this special way when the new king comes. He will be connected to it. Be something redemptive about that. And what kind of king is coming? Well, he's going to be from the line of David, which God had promised to maintain on the throne of Israel, but which, you know, that was in jeopardy at the time this was written. And he is a human, it would seem, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, but he's also more than human because he will reign over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. He's called everlasting father or father of eternity because he is eternal and he is the one from whom eternal things come. So that is not a regular human. And what's his kingdom like? Well, besides overflowing with the justice and righteousness just spoken of, it's also an ever-expanding kingdom. It is a place of joy. It is free from oppression. It is a place of permanent peace where no weapons of war are needed. Of the greatness of this king's government and peace, there will be no end. And for all this, he will be called Mighty God. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, which is someone with extraordinary wisdom who can accomplish miraculous things. And he will be called, of course, the Prince of Peace. And it's important that we start with Isaiah's original audience and what they would have made of this prophecy. That's just good practice when you look at the Old Testament. And so if they heard about this king, this coming Prince of Peace, well, Isaiah is describing the perfect opposite of what the people of Jerusalem had been used to. Their kings had been unfaithful. They'd allowed injustice to thrive. Because of them, the kingdom was diminished. It, was, it led to the people being impoverished and weak. So this new king would have sounded awfully good. The line of David restored with the wisdom and power to make things right. After generations of seeing things go increasingly wrong, sure, that would sound great. But what good did that vision do them in that moment, in those depressing circumstances they were living through? And that, the answer really to that is hope. And last week was the Sunday of hope. This is the Sunday of peace, but I'm going to cheat a bit and end up talking about both because often, really, we need hope to have peace. Hope matters, even if it doesn't change what's happening to you in this exact moment. The people of Jerusalem were wondering if everything they thought about themselves was a lie. I mean, maybe God hadn't rescued them and raised them up to be his people and bless the world. Maybe they were just going to be oppressed and then absorbed and then forgotten a footnote of history. And if that it was the case, then why even bother being faithful to God? Why even try to retain their identity? Why did anything matter? And so Isaiah offered hope that yeah, it did still matter, that God's plan was still in effect, his promises were still good, and one day this new king was going to make everything right. And in the meantime, wouldn't the God who would do all that still care for those who fear him? Even if they didn't get to see that day themselves, there was value in working toward it. People do that all the time. It's a wonderful thing about human beings. We fight for things because we hope for a better future, even if we won't get to see it. Right? We raise money to find cures for diseases that could take generations. We donate to organizations whose goals might not be realized in our lifetimes. We do it because of a vision for a better future, for hope, for what is possible. And Isaiah presented this hope in God's future. And that became part of what helped the Hebrew people survive and even thrive under 
all kinds of circumstances, God was still at work. And if you know their history a little bit, then you'll also know that things actually got worse before they got better. A lot of their fears were realized. Uh, you know, their rulers persisted in wickedness. The Babylonian Empire came and eventually conquered them as well, carried away many of the people as captives. But then God still did something. In captivity in Babylon, God worked to restore and strengthen their faith and their sense of identity in him before then making a way for them to return to their land and rebuild their home. But they still lacked that good king. They ended up under Roman rule. And once again, we're living in hope that this Emmanuel, this mighty God, this Prince of Peace, would he finally come and make the fullness of Isaiah's vision real. So that was the power of Isaiah's vision to the people who first received it. But of course, Christians have reinterpreted this vision in the belief that, well, we know exactly who this king is, we think. I mean, let's see, he's connected to Galilee. He's from the line of David. He's born of a virgin. He's a child born for this saving purpose, the wonderful counselor with authority over eternity. I mean, who could that be? <laughs> and Matthew in his gospel goes into this very passage to say that, yes, Jesus is this king. In Matthew chapter four, we read that when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said in the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Gentile, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this connection is picked up a little less directly by the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary about the birth of Jesus. When he says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So from a Christian perspective, this Prince of Peace clearly is Jesus, the Messiah, God's anointed, the long-awaited Savior of the world. But it didn't look that way to many people of Jesus' time. I mean, where was this Jesus' kingdom? And he didn't have one. He just had this scruffy band of nobodies following him around. And he didn't seem to be trying to get one. He didn't try to raise an army. He didn't try to grow his influence or challenge Rome. Told people to pay taxes to Caesar, for goodness sake. He preached that the meek would inherit the earth. The meek? How was he going to end up on David's throne? But as Jesus would later tell the Roman governor Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And then as the remainder of the New Testament tells us, Jesus' kingdom was unleashed on that world soon after his death and resurrection. And it was not a nation, and it had no armies or power, but it entered all the nations, and it changed them. It outlived all their kings and their governments. And this expression of Jesus' kingdom is the church. But at the Bible's end, the book of Revelation, we see that there is another vision. It is a vision of the final expression of Jesus' kingdom. The new creation where God and humanity are fully reunited in this reality where peace and 
justice and righteousness are fully established and upheld forever. So this kingdom and the peace it brings is not simply A or B. For you and I, believing in Jesus as the Prince of Peace means holding a couple of different sets of things in that tension. That God's peace is both internal and external, that it is both real now and also it's still to come. So I'm going to look at those two things, internal and external first. What does that mean? And internal and external means that for Christians, Jesus brings spiritual peace that begins within us and then expands to the world around us. The spiritual peace Jesus brings comes through our being reconciled to God. When we live in rejection of God, when we refuse his rule and his way, there is a peace we will always lack because of that. And you can bury these feelings, but many people will sense that when they, they, they are at odds with their creator and the way this world ought to work. And Jesus extends his grace for our sin. He invites us to return to the family of God where we belong and promises us this new and eternal life when we come to him. And there is a peace in that. To know that I have been made right with God, that I have access to God, that I can freely praise God and enjoy his love. That's the internal peace of knowing the Prince of Peace. But when I have this love for God, it also spills out on those around me. External peace results. Followers of Jesus try to develop those fruit of the Spirit. That love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control that allows us to live at peace with others, which is what the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Right? We can't change other people. We can't do miracles. But if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Followers of Jesus also forgive as Jesus commanded us to forgive, which promotes peace. Someone I was listening to this week was reflecting on just some of the strange and even hurtful ways that other Christians had treated them over the years. Just inexplicable reactions that they'd had. And they kept coming back to Jesus' words on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And we should take after Jesus in those words. Those aren't just words for willfully evil people because all of us at one time or another mess things up simply because we do not know what we are doing. Can we forgive ourselves and others the way that Jesus did? External peace goes farther though. It goes farther than just our relationships and the people around us. It goes into the systems and structures of our world. Christians should be peacemakers who want the world we live in to treat people with dignity and respect. There is no peace where injustice thrives. The prophets in the Old Testament say this in many ways in many different uh, places. To say the people say peace, peace, but there is no peace because there's no justice. One of the biggest examples perhaps of, of this happening is in the 20th century at least would be the way that the church in Eastern Europe really helped to shatter the Soviet Union and ended the Cold War in a peaceful way. I mean, from the end of the Second World War all the way to 1989, Christians in many Eastern Bloc countries faced incredible persecutions. You can go see concentration camps in Hungary where Christian clergy and ordinary Christians were were murdered. You can go to forced labor camps in the Czech Republic where this was happening under Soviet rule at that time. Bibles were illegal and had to be smuggled in. But churches and of all varieties 
Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox. They were some of the few places where freedom could be found to gather and discuss and plan and hope for something better. Some people know that Pope John Paul II was one of the religious leaders who famously provided encouragement and leadership for this push toward freedom, to end the oppression in these places. People with internal peace are often the most driven to seek peace between others and for others. Following the Prince of Peace will do that. So that's internal and external. And along with those, the other things to hold in tension about peace is that peace is for now and also for that, that time that's not yet here, the now and the not yet. Following the Prince of Peace can give us access to some internal and external peace in the here and now through, through prayer, through spiritual disciplines. We often have this resource at our disposal that can help us to overcome anxiety or fear in the everyday. Walking with God gives us peace in the now. We also have this opportunity now to come together and create a kingdom where things are done Jesus' way, and that kingdom is still the church. That's the Prince of Peace's kingdom on earth right now. The church is our opportunity to live Jesus' commands and show the world how good God's way is. We can build a kingdom of peace in all nations through his church. But if a Christian sense of peace, a Christian sense of peace is also found in the future. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 declares that if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's a strong statement. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. A big part of our peace comes from our faith in what God is still going to do. It's Jesus' promise to the criminal on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. It's Paul's confidence that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's John's vision of seeing the new heaven and the new earth that Isaiah also spoke about where he declares, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In the season of Advent, we celebrate Jesus' coming at Christmas and we renew our faith in his coming again to fully establish his kingdom. Unlike the people Isaiah first wrote to, we have the incredible privilege of knowing what it means that for us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But just like them, true peace needs to be built on hope for the future. Of the day when we will, we will see what it means that the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I hope this is really just one of the most wonderful times of the year for you right now. But at best, it's probably a bit of a mix. There's anticipation and joy. There's also loss and uncertainty. If we want to look for darkness around us, we can certainly find it. 
There is illness and sadness and even hopelessness. There is crime and violence and war and injustice. There is simply the tiredness, the lifelessness that comes from how demanding life can be. Maybe some days you feel like you are walking in darkness. Let's be reminded today that a light has dawned and that light still shines. Emmanuel, God with us, is our light, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And so as we reach the second Sunday of Advent, my prayer and hope for you is to experience God's peace. May you experience the peace of knowing Christ and feeling secure in his love and grace. May your faith extend peace to your relationships and the wider world through the forgiveness Jesus taught and the qualities of his character that we seek to grow in us. May you find peace through your part in Jesus' church, the expression of God's kingdom on earth. It is, if it is not the place of loving acceptance and purposeful service that it should be, then let's do what we can to make it more and more that way. And may you experience peace that comes from your future hope. If you belong to Jesus, then eternal life is your inheritance. Everything lost will be restored, everything broken will be redeemed, and you will stand with your creator perfected. Let's turn to our king and ask for the peace we need. Loving God, as we go before your table in a moment for our time of communion, I think of you in the garden of Gethsemane, anticipating the, the pain and suffering that is to come, sweating blood, recognizing what you were going to be giving. And what did you do? You turned to your father and asked, if this is necessary, if this must be done, then give me the strength. Give me the help. Be with me. Lord Jesus, for anyone here who is struggling to find peace, who overcome with anxiety, who's not eating or sleeping right, who's just not sure how tomorrow's going to work. I pray that God, whether on their knees or just in their minds in a moment of, of reaching out, that you would hear their prayers, that you would receive them, that you would walk beside them, that you would extend internal peace to them and through your people and your church that you would help bring some external peace into their circumstances. And Lord, give us always hope. Tomorrow is a new day, and it's yours. I pray that you would help us to work for the, the better future we believe that you are bringing and trust you to meet us there. In Jesus' name, amen.